0: Hey, y'all. It is me, Lauren Mitchell. Crazy, I know, but you're listening to Cavern of Secrets, which is a show about extraordinary women. to talk about something like pretty lighthearted gonna get a little more lighthearted maybe than the past couple of episodes um I'm thinking about crushes a lot recently it's because I have a crush on someone so I'm like in that zone where I'm like you know thinking of like reasons to like text that person or like just you know like checking up on their like Instagram and they're like Facebook and, like, any possible social media presence I can find, just to, like, see, but, like, not get too stressed out if it seems like they're talking about people who aren't me, you know? When I was younger, I definitely thought that crushes were something that were just going to go away. I thought when I was, like, grown up and I was an adult that I just, like, wouldn't have crushes anymore, that you'd just be, like, in a relationship with someone or not in a relationship with someone. But like, fortunately, those emotions that make you feel like a friggin' teenager are still there, and I love it. I haven't had a crush on someone in a long time, so this like newfound crush is like bringing up all these residue feelings for me. It's like so nice. I mean, it feels a little bit creepy sometimes, especially in the sort of era of internet and social media we're in. Like, you can definitely end up roughly 72 weeks back on someone's Instagram, and then you, like, accidentally double-tap that pic, and the next thing you know, that person is getting a notification about you being 72 weeks back in their Instagram. like it's not uncommon right (laughs) you guys are like 100% all have done this right because I'm not talking about a friend I'm talking about me I've definitely done this um but I think like it's flattering right I think I'd be flattered if like the right person got far enough back in my Instagram honestly I'd be flattered if anyone cared about my life that much in relationships, I always feel like I'm a little bit obsessed with like knowing the person that they were before I was around, and I think, like, part of that Nancy Drew-ish happens when you like have a crush on someone and you're just like, "What's your mom like? <laughs> like, where did you go to public school? I need to know everything." And it's all just like endearing little bits of information that help you like build up these crush feelings on the inside. I hope this is relatable. If this is not relatable, man, you guys, I don't even know. Can you tell I'm really deep in this? (laughs) I'm like really in my feelings about this right now. (laughs) I'm happy that these like nostalgic feelings still exist because as you get older, it sometimes feels like you get farther away from This is gonna sound so corny, but you get further away from like the really simplistic pleasures, like stuff that made you really happy when you were a kid or when you were an adolescent or when you were a teenager. Having a crush as an adult, it's like that same like sort of joyful feeling with, I mean, slightly less anxiety. I definitely have less anxiety around crushes now than I did when I was like from the age of like 10 to like Fucking 18, you know what I mean? Now I'm like, I know how to deal with it. I'm better at dealing with rejection. I'm better at dealing with when you get to the point where you're like, okay, like I have a crush on this person. Do I do the thing? You know what I mean? Cause I felt like when I was a teenager, I was just like, unrequited love. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's so stressful and anxiety filling, and everything feels weird. My body feels weird. I'm a fucking mess of like hormones and emotions and all of that shit. And it's like very hard to process. Which I think is cool. Anyways. I'm really into having a crush right now is what I would say. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs> um, I hope you guys all have a crush on someone. Whether it's like a romantic crush or like a friend crush. Friend crushes are fun too. That's how you make new friends I think as an adult. Is you get like a friend crush on someone and then you're like. That's so much like easier I think than romantic crushes. Most people are like aren't going to reject you for, like, a coffee or, like, a beer hang. You know what I mean? Or maybe they will. I don't know. (laughs) Um, You guys, our guest this week is extremely cool and a powerhouse of a woman. Her name is Carmen Aguirre. You probably know her from her first memoir, a book called Something Fierce, which won the Canada Reads competition for our American listeners – It's a Canadian thing. You'll be fine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She just came out with this book called Mexican Hooker Number 1. Her first book was about her life as a Chilean revolutionary. And this book is sort of about the aftermath of that, how she turned multiple layers and levels of trauma into art. Carmen is amazing. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. You need to go pick up her book. She is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant writer. And I really hope you enjoy the episode. I guess I wanted to talk to you about being a very public person and on a lot of levels a very private person and sort of how those two things have, like, intersected because it feels like a lot of what you've done is super public whereas, like, a lot of it is also, like, couldn't be known by anyone.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Am I making sense a little bit? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: The tension between the the private and the public. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. I don't think anybody's ever asked that question.
0: So, (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: yeah, I mean, the thing about making art is that the most important character is always the audience or the reader, Mm -hmm. right? So, if you're not putting it out there, then you're basically not making art.
0: Yeah, you're you're doing something in a vacuum. Yes,
1: yeah. So you learn that it's not about you; it's about the work right? So it's not that I'm making myself public, it's I'm making the work public. And that is the point of art for people to witness it, to consume it, to feel identified by it, to get healing from it or whatever it is that they might receive from the artwork being put out there.
0: Is there like a performative aspect to sort of revolutionary political activism, do you think?
1: I suppose there is. I mean, like, for example, one of the things that was very important for us when when I was in the Chilean resistance during the dictatorship in Chile was, what would we call it? You see, it's been so long and I'm so old and I was so young. But um, (laughs) we called it propaganda, I guess. I think that was the right word. Mm -hmm. And basically there was a wing of the resistance that was in charge of that. And that was was all about performance. And Mm -hmm. it was basically about letting... Uh, the Chilean population know that even though we lived under this extremely repressive dictatorship, that had the secret police was infiltrating everything and everybody, that it was possible to resist, and that there actually was a resistance. So, what would that consist of in terms of performance? Uh, you know, people might get up in the morning in Santiago, and on their commute to work, all of a sudden they would notice that many of the walls along the major avenues had fresh graffiti on them from the night before, basically saying, we are here, we exist, and we are resisting in the name of the movement, a movement which supposedly had been completely wiped out according to the mainstream media, stuff like that.
0: Under that dictatorship, that's so, like, the performative statement being, we are still here. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's quite profound, and I think it has a lot to do with Why people make art as well. I think a lot of people do it in the hopes that like 50 years after you're dead, someone's going to read it or someone's going to see it and they're going to be like, that person's still here in a Mm -hmm. weird way.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In my case, I started making art. uh, A lot of it was about creating spaces that did not exist, right? I come from a minority community, Mm -hmm. right? I come from the Chilean community in exile. We were political refugees. Uh, we were one of the poorest demographics in Vancouver when we first arrived there because we literally came with nothing. Yeah. You know, I grew up um, helping my parents work every single night, you know, going to do janitor work with them. And um, I did not see any of those stories or even anything remotely close to those stories on the stages in Vancouver Mm -hmm. and probably not in a lot of places in Canada when I was going to theater school. Yeah. And I would look around and say, realize like such a huge portion of the population in Vancouver has my story. Yeah. But it is completely silenced, completely erased, completely isolated. It is worth nothing in the art world. It is worth absolutely nothing. So for me, it was about claiming spaces and Mm -hmm. telling stories that were not being told, and which were also not believed, right? When I would venture to tell a story of my community in my theater school, quite often what would come back at me was disbelief. Um, Even though, ironically, (laughs) I think I say this in the book, ironically, the actual janitors who would clean the floors that we did theater on were Guatemalan exiles who themselves had been tortured. Uh, But again, the disconnect between art, quote unquote, right, Mm -hmm. high art, and what that family's experience was so extreme that for me it was, okay, I am acquiring a skill set by coming to theater school, which is a privilege that pretty much, you know, I'm one of the only people in my community had that Mm -hmm. privilege, right? Uh, I better use that skill set for something other than telling some high class story about, you know, my personal crisis. Yeah. You know, without even giving it a social or historical or political context. So for me it was always about that, about telling stories that I was not seeing anywhere on stage and that were erased. <laughs>
0: You know who Juno Diaz is? Yeah, I love yeah. Juno Diaz. Have you ever yeah. read the Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde? Yeah, yeah. I read that book, and I knew so much about Haiti because I'd sort of uh-huh. just done a lot of research about Haiti. And that book to me was like his footnotes and the way that he talked about the Dominican uh-huh. was like putting another half of the story mm-hmm. in into this thing that I already sort of know, mm-hmm. but the humanization of it is, to me, what makes it sticky. I think when something is over-intellectualized or uh, made too academic, it becomes like, I'm watching this from a bird's eye view. Whereas when you can feel something through art, it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, that is relatable to me.
1: Yes, yes. And you know, as you know, the more specific you are, the more universal you are Mm -hmm. in art. I've had literally every type of person in terms of nationality, race, gender, sexual orientation, social class, et cetera, tell me that, oh, that story that you just told, that's my story. That's awesome. Yeah. Like, for example, like my first book, Something Fierce, Mm -hmm. I've had like everybody across the board, (laughs) every type of person tell me that was their story, including, for example, like a white Canadian Afghan war vet. Wow. Yeah. Yeah you know, with tears pouring down his face saying, that's my story. You know, and I think that he was relating to terror. Yeah. He was relating it to being terrified as a young soldier. I think that's that was his way in to something fierce. Like, I can relate to being terrified.
0: Yeah, because you address in Mexican Hooker number one, you address the sort of fact that you clearly had PTSD, mm-hmm. but it was like, Not something that anyone around with you knew how to deal with. Not something that you had a system in place. You couldn't go to a doctor. You couldn't do any of that. So I think, yeah, allowing people to come to that through art is really beautiful.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Is Vancouver different now since you first sort of started chipping away at that very uh white uh, <laughs> scene in Vancouver is the Yes, it is. I mean,
1: the change is always much slower than one would hope, right
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah um, so there's still a lot of work to do, right that in other words, you know the companies that get the most resources are still you yeah. know. Pretty white, yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> but you know, the independent, smaller companies have gotten better, the younger ones. Mm-hmm. The younger ones have gotten better at uh addressing equal representation mm-hmm. on stage.
0: And you do a bit of both, right? Like yes. you've been in like mainstream stuff and yes. mm-hmm. um independent stuff. You find there's like more of a freedom in the sort of like independent side of things?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean I I I Audition a lot for film and TV, and mm-hmm. usually the parts that I get are stereotypical. Mm-hmm. I love being on set. I love acting for the camera because it's so different mm-hmm. than acting on stage. but it's not a space that yeah is for me as it were, right yeah. like, like what am I trying to say if in the theater scene in Canada, so for example, Canadian Actors Equity Association, our union, conducted a census last year, and for the first time in its history it it asked its membership. Questions, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember Mm -hmm. the exact wording of the questions. Questions like, what is your race? What is your gender? What parts do you get? And the findings were really quite, you know, disturbing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So basically the findings for stage work um, is that of all the women that get work on Canadian stages, 3.7% are women of color.
0: Jesus.
1: And of that percentage, almost none are in lead roles. And the film and TV industry is worse. (laughs) Oh, God. So, yeah, it's still all about space and all about uh, representation. Yeah. And all about whose story is being told and from whose point of view and through what lens.
0: God, that's so bleak. Yeah. I do think your writing feels very cinematic I get sucked in to the story and like forget that it really happened to you I'm <laughs> like oh no this is real it happened to like a real person um and I wonder do you think that's because of your theater playwright acting background do you think you just have yes. sort of a Yes.
1: I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, playwriting is one of the hardest forms mm-hmm. to write in. It's probably akin to poetry because it's so taut, mm-hmm. and it's, and you have to be so economical. Um, and it's all about what's at stake, what's at stake, what's at stake. And there has to be something at stake from the very moment that the lights go up. Yeah. And what's the present tense? What's happening right now in front of the audience? What is happening now? It can't be about the past. It has to be about right now. So you have to have very strong themes when -hmm. you're playwriting, and you have to have a very strong super objective for each one of the characters. You have to make sure the characters never get what they want. Otherwise, there's no conflict, and there's consequently no play. (laughs) (laughs) So all of that, which uh, is very hard to do in dialogue Mm form— And, you know, you have to write, you know, 50 pages of dialogue to come up with maybe between one and five that you keep, yeah. right? All of that practice has really, really helped in prose writing um, because I know exactly what my character, which in this case is me, <laughs> 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 wants to get. And I know that she's not going to get it. Yeah. It's about structuring the book in such a way that the reader will want to keep turning the page Mm -hmm. right um and so for me that's always the hardest part right because as far as I'm concerned that's also the hardest part of playwriting Mm -hmm. is the actual structure so with this book you know my brain exploded like it usually does um when I was trying to structure the book you know at the, the final draft wasn't about the content the content was all there yeah it was literally about okay I move this piece over there oh the whole thing fell yeah okay Let's start again. Let's move it over there. Oh, the whole thing fell down again. And I did all that over a four-week, like that. Stru- the final structuring. I mean, the structure was pretty much there, but it needed fine-tuning. Mm-hmm. I did all that over a four-week period in Greece last summer mm. where I locked myself away in this room on an island. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was... I didn't know a soul in the entire country, they didn't speak a word of the language, they didn't understand the alphabet. So when I walked down the street, nothing could distract me. I was just yeah. in this bubble. When I was on the beach at night, uh, I couldn't understand a word of what anybody was saying. So oh, it was like white noise. Oh, yeah. So it was almost like a 24-hour writing thing, right? Yeah. Like uh, when you're in this bubble. But yeah, there was one day when I I said, okay, I think my, my brain will now explode when it was... I, I, I watched the clock and it had been 17 and a half hours. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs>
0: Use the phrase revolutionary love, which is like, I don't know, it really struck me. I like literally wrote it down because I was like, I'm so interested in this little turn of phrase.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, for me, it's kind of literal. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) Where basically you choose to give your life to a cause much bigger than yourself, Mm -hmm. right? So that's revolutionary love Mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. And it's something that uh, the man that I was married to when I was in the resistance and I would talk about a lot. Mm Right. That, um, yes, of course, we loved each other and we loved our families and we loved our lives. But that above all of that was was revolutionary love Um, and that that's what actually kept us together in a way. Um, I don't know how else to describe it, really.
0: Would you go back to (laughs) would you go back to being a revolutionary? I know it's like a completely different time in your life now, but is Uh that do you still feel that like pull? Does it pull you in that direction?
1: Yes. I mean, if there was a situation in which um, I was asked to join a resistance movement again, I would. Yes.
0: Yes. That's extremely badass of you. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I mean, or even if we look at history, right? Like if I Mm -hmm. happen to be living in France right now during the Nazi occupation, I would join the French resistance.
0: Yeah. Do you think you were sort of born with that inclination or do you think it's like part of your family? Like you talk a lot about your mom. Mm -hmm. Um. Genetics, probably not the word I want to use, but do you think that's like been passed down to you?
1: I think so, and also it it does have to do with the fact that we were expelled from the country when yeah. I was, you know, um, I guess I was five. No, I was five when the coup happened, mm-hmm. and six when we were expelled, and that marks you forever, mm-hmm. right? And to see my parents suffering mm-hmm. the way that they suffered in exile, and to see my whole community suffer. The way they suffered. So I think it does something to you as a child yeah. to experience exile as a child yeah. and to see uh, the adults around you completely destroyed, mm-hmm. completely, completely, completely destroyed. And in some cases, uh, physically as well, because many, many people in my community, the people that I call uncles and aunts, were mm-hmm. coming directly from the concentration camps and yep. had been severely tortured. And they were all very young. Yeah right? Like some of my uncles and aunts were literally 17, 18, 19, right? Coming directly from the concentration camps alone. And of course being taken in by by the Chilean community. But um, it was through them and through my own experience that um, I really, really understood from a very young age um, what I wanted to do with my life, which was to fight for a cause that would change all of that right Mm -hmm. and I'm not talking about civil rights in terms of obviously you know Mm -hmm. you have the right to not be tortured and put in a concentration camp (laughs) right Um, but also like the basic human rights that all these people were fighting for which was you know the right to universal health care the right to education the right to shelter food water etc which is what the socialist government in Chile was addressing when the coup happened
0: Mm -hmm. So your book that you just wrote is about this whole other, like, sort of god-awful, insane thing that happened to you, which is, like, not actually that crazy. Sexual assault is, like, a real thing that happens to Mm -hmm. women all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially at the beginning of the book, it's, like, this sort of unspoken thing and theater school, of course, like helped you sort of start to work on it. Mm-hmm. But I'm interested in the process of you starting to write this second book and it sort of like ended up becoming about the rape. You wanted to write about becoming like a writer and an actor, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. So basically, like I knew that the theme of the second book was going to be healing from PTSD. Mm-hmm. It kind of had to pick up where something fears left mm-hmm. off because when when I did the book tour for Something fears, so much of the questions that were coming from the audience and from journalists as well were two questions. If I were to distill it down, right, yeah. two questions. It, one was how did you recover mm-hmm. from that level of trauma in terms of feeling chronic terror like mm-hmm. living in a state of chronic terror how, how do you actually heal from that yep. if you do yep. right and how did you find meaning in your life after that because having a life so full of meaning when you were a youth mm-hmm. and then losing all of that like how huh, how did you yeah. how do you find something meaningful again that, yeah. that how, how could anything ever compare to that yeah Those are the questions that I wanted to answer in the second book, Mm -hmm. right? So the second question was, the answer is through art, right? Through becoming an artist. And when I got into the theme of healing from PTSD, I was like, well, you do kind of have to address the other big trauma that you needed to heal from, right? Which was this rape when I was a child. Because that story is as much about the aftermath as it is about the actual rape, Mm -hmm. that will actually take a long time to tell, right? It's not just one passage, right? Uh, So I realized quickly that that would have to be the spine of the book for various reasons, Mm -hmm. right? So structurally, I think it works. Also, you can almost use the image of having to go to, not having to, but wanting to go to the parole hearings every two years Mm -hmm. for the last 21 years, which is more or less when the book starts, more or less the image of a spine actually comes up, like revisiting it every two years, every two years, every two years. And also, and you know, I use the image in the beginning of the book of the rape being part of my northern narrative as opposed to Mm -hmm. my southern narrative. And so when I was in the south, I could keep that in the north. And it was was just like a satellite orbiting out in space until it crashes into me.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then when it crashes into me, I use the image of the kaleidoscope, right? That when you're looking at it, Uh, The images keep falling into each other. So I wanted to um, evoke that.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that you, like, almost compartmentalized your trauma. You know what I mean? Like, this trauma belongs to this part of the world, and this trauma belongs to this part of the world. Did you find that when you came back to Canada, you sort of were like, okay, well, then this trauma stays in the south? Was it sort of compartmentalized in the reverse, I guess? Yes.
1: Yes, mostly because, um, first of all, with the mainstream, I would never, ever speak about it because I would be literally disbelieved and also, you know, people would be clueless as to what to do with that story. Yeah. Right? And also within the Chilean community, it wasn't spoken of for security reasons yeah. as well, right? Um, yeah, that was like, okay, that's the Southern narrative. Leave it over there.
0: Um, uh-huh. It is sort of crazy to me, I think because when i was in university i had a professor who cuz i was went to university in sort of a post 9/11 situation he always talked about september 11th as the uh, day that Allende was uh, murdered mm-hmm. and so i've met people from uh, chile who are astonished that i know uh, who Allende is like mm-hmm. that i know that he was killed september 11th 76 is that 73 uh, 73, yeah, 73 okay i'm always off by a couple of years but <laughs> And so that's interesting that the community was like, no, we can't really, we got to shelve this. And then other people were like, I don't even know what you're talking about. To me, like, the sort of narrative of what happened in Chile is like probably one of the most heartbreaking things. I mean, I'm a bit of a, when I say a bit of a, I'm a pretty left-leaning individual. So for me, that is like, that stands as one of those things where it was like, we could have had it. You know what I mean? It was there. You are a very compassionate person. <laughs> I'm placing that on you. you have you seem to have a lot of compassion for at least the person who raped you in a way. like the compassion seems to be there in a way that like mm-hmm. I think is probably a struggle for pretty much anyone who's a survivor of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Did that come to you through art as well, or is there like a sort of different method of healing? I mean, I did an
1: actual healing work, right? So I did years of therapy. Yeah, well, yeah, and body work, mm -hmm. right? And um, you know, it's it's once you really understand the level of violence that men are subjected to, Mm -hmm. just because they're men, Mm -hmm. you know, especially when they're children, and Mm -hmm. that they are expected to withstand, Um, I I find it like uh, violent to say to a boy something like Boys Don't Cry, for yeah. example, right? Um, it's when I really, really, really understood that, that I was able to forgive all my offenders for all the violence that they've perpetrated on me. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not helpful, I think, to me or to anybody or to any society to label um, somebody like the paper bag rapist a monster. hmm even though he did, by his own admission, rape hundreds of children mm-hmm. at gunpoint um, and psychologically tortured all of us. Um, because by dehumanizing him and calling him a monster, we are basically refusing to look at the darkness within ourselves. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, he is a human being, which mm-hmm. is actually why he did that. Yeah. An animal wouldn't do that.
0: Right. Oh,
1: wow. <laughs> so, um in other words, we all have the capacity to do what mm-hmm. he did, right? So it is much more helpful to me, I think, and to society at large to see that he is a complex human being and to see that a victim such as myself is so much more than a victim. I do mm-hmm. not identify as a victim at all. Yeah. Um, and that there is uh, a lot of complexity in being raped as well as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um and I think there's something to be said, too, about, and you touched on it, that sort of structural violence inherent within sort of structures of masculinity, the sort of, like, patriarchal society we live in. And people love people love to pretend that we didn't build the system.
1: Yeah. Or that hunger is some kind of natural phenomenon. No, hunger yeah. was built by us, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: And for me, it sort of maybe aligns a little bit, too, with... You're like fighting against the systemic oppression, Mm -hmm. the built in political oppression that existed by law in Chile and in Mm -hmm. lots of places Mm -hmm. all over the world. Mm -hmm. And it's like when it's obvious or not even when it's obvious, but when it's perpetuated against one guy, against a group of people, it's like, how is that different than the sort of. Way that those systems of violence like fuck with an individual, and then that person sort of perpetrates that harm onto others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We got a lot of healing to do as a society. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. This is crazy of me to ask. Do you have another book in you that you're...
1: Oh, yeah. I think yeah. I have lots. I think the next one is a novel. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll take place in the 20th century, in mostly in Chile, I oh, think. Oh, cool. Um, and it's family stories. I think the spine of that one will be these uh, characters based on my three great aunts who make a very, you know, short appearance in something fierce. Mm-hmm. And um, they are um, ultra right wing who um, helped to found a movement during Allende, actually, Mm -hmm. neo-Nazi movement Mm -hmm. called um, Fatherland and Liberty. And it was a terrorist movement that would target civilians during Allende.
0: Oh my God. Yeah.
1: And so they helped found that movement and fund it as well. Um, And then they funded Pinochet, and loved him all through the dictatorship. And these women are fascinating to me because they made a blood pact when they were teenagers. The the three of them are sisters, my great-aunts, right? Uh, They made a blood pact that they would never let a man control their lives because their father was very violent. And so until the day they died, in fact, I think two of them are still alive, but they don't speak to my side of the family. So the, but, that, but you know, so that they're in their nineties, right? Yeah, um, they're still virgins.
0: Oh my god!
1: Because they decided to never ever let a man control their lives, and that also that they would be self-made millionaires, and they are. Uh, they were. They made their fortune smuggling. None of them has, has ever been with a man. I just find them very fascinating. Yeah. yeah I know the head of a right winger very, very well because mm-hmm. I've been exposed to it so much. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really fun. I mean, I started writing a little bit of the, of this book, which is going to be called Three Virgins. <laughs>
0: Amazing. I'm already, how do I pre-order this book on Amazon? <laughs> and,
1: uh, it's just so much fun to be inside these women's heads, right? Because I know exactly I know exactly how they think, what vocabulary yeah. they use. Like, they are so right-wing, like, so incorrect it, that it's fun, right? It's, like, it's it's very
0: fun. <laughs> Fuck, that sounds – god damn, I'm so interested in these three women. I want to watch, like, a Ken Burns-esque documentary about them. Holy shit. Um, you've start, So you've started a bit of it. Is it a bit of a, like – I mean, of course you're a playwright, so then you're writing things that are sort of, like, fictionalized, but is – writing a like f- novels you think that's going are you looking forward to it yes
1: it's so liberating cuz you know when i write memoirs i have to be very careful like I, ha- I spend a lot of time writing emails and phoning people going so you're in my memoir yeah. this is this is what i say about you is that okay yeah navigating that mm-hmm. right um and just in this case i don't have to worry about any of that i mean i'll still get in trouble i'm sure but yeah. uh, you know when you put the label fiction on something that yeah
0: it's already been good if yeah. it doesn't get you in trouble a little yeah, bit, you Yeah, it's true.
1: Yeah, I'm already in trouble with the title of this book, so,
0: you know. Thank you again to the incredible Carmen Aguirre for coming through. What an amazing woman. So glad to meet her. Cavern of Secrets is brought to you by the fine folks at Hazlitt. Oh my god. It is in fact hosted by me, Laura Mitchell. I'm still here. Uh, our theme was made by the wonderful Bianca Giulione. The show is produced by the wonderful Anjim and You can find us literally all over the goddamn internet. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. It's crazy. You can also find us on our website, Cavern of Secrets. Dot com and if you like you can follow us on twitter it's at cavern of secrets if you like us if you like what we're doing please rate and review us on itunes please validate me in my time of need uh it is super important seriously all the stars count all the nice things you say count i mean you can say bad things too like my ego isn't that fragile but you know it's all love here on cavern of secrets <laughs> uh and finally one more time just so you remember me. I'm Laura Mitchell. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.